Hi, it's Mike. Sometimes you hear podcasters say, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Does it? I think it might. Why not try it? Please follow us and do recommend the show to others. And if you can, leave a review in your own mind, in your own hearts, or especially on one of those big websites that keeps the reviews and shows them to the rest of the public. It's Tuesday, June 27th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump knows a lot of things, not how to store documents or which boxes are golf shirts and which are war plans with Iran, apparently. But he understands how an idea lodges in people's brains and becomes real, fleshes itself out. Rhetorically, he frequently uses visual imagery. For instance, not just talking about the unfreezing of funds for Iranians as part of the JCPOA. Snoozer! It became, in his telling, pallets of cash, boxes of literal cash. When describing how ISIS treated prisoners, not just with an adjective like inhumanely or horribly, they would always drown them in cages. When you can create a visual, the words become real, have resonance. Well, it started right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a kid. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. And that's what the new tapes of Donald Trump, apparently mishandling classified documents, do. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but... We had the transcript already. We know he said these things, but hearing how he said it makes it more real and will make it more real to the ears of a jury. All sorts of stuff. Pages long. Wait a minute. Let's see here. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. secret. <laughs> there are three new parts to these tapes unearthed by CNN. We heard a little of preamble, a visitor appealing to Trump's ego by validating the idea of a coup. Then there was the inevitable Hillary Anthony Weiner aside. And Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> she'd, send it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. And we end, as is the custom of a Trump meeting, with the beckoning of the colas. No, hey, bring some, uh, bring some cokes in, please. Who leaked it? Was it the writer? Would someone associated with Mark Meadows have been motivated to get the tapes out to the public? The DOJ leaking it? I don't know. Seems to me dicey. Why would they care to flesh out the audio of what they already wrote down and will be introducing should this trial come? We did have words on the page detailing classified document retention. Now we have the sound of those words once on the page. I think the next breaking story is going to be that Trump taped the scene for the Apple Vision Pro mixed reality headset. He's tearing up real pieces of top secret documents and turning them into NFTs. Oh, I can't believe it. Donald Trump has created a hip hop musical podcast with each episode being one of the 31 documents. Document dated December 19th concerning foreign countries' support of terrorist acts against U.S. interests. That's a real banger. And I could see the Celine Dion cover of undated document concerning military contingency planning of the United States. I don't know. Hit number one. Certainly top ten. Unreal. Except it's all real. On the show today, I finish the spiel from yesterday about the lengths that some people might go to check a stat. 
those lengths, two spiels. But first, let me tell you about a guy. He's an old timer, about 300,000 years old. Homo Naledi was found in a cave in South Africa. And the story of his discovery and what it implies is a wild one. Up next, I'm joined by National Geographic explorer in residence and paleoanthropologist Lee Berger, who led the expedition and in doing so, shrank his physical form to fit his ambitions. So in advance of this next interview, some disclosure, I'm a homo sapien. My next guest is a homo sapien. I just say that by means of knowing where we're coming from, thinking about, because we are talking about a little guy named Homo Naledi. He lived in South Africa, went inside the cave system, made some markings on the wall. He was discovered, or at least aspects of his life, we say his, his and her life, were discovered by Lee Berger and his team of underground astronauts who excavated and explored the cave, the rising star cave system in South Africa. Lee is a paleoanthropologist, a National Geographic explorer in residence, and he found some fascinating things about this guy who existed, I don't know, 250 to 300,000 years ago. Lee Berger, welcome to The Gist. Thanks a lot, and I'm glad you corrected the he-she thing, because we don't, we don't know yet, but we will know, which is, I think is part of the exciting uh, uh, development of this uh, continuing journey. Has paleoanthropology gotten away from uh, the man nomenclature, uh, Java man, this or that man? Absolutely, absolutely. Good way to get yourself kicked out of a conference. Really? (laughs) Um, Rightfully so, so, too, by the way. Of all the homonyms, what attracted you to Homo Naledi? So Homo Naledi found me. Um, I had was sitting in a very interesting position back in 2013 when – we were building a structure over a site uh, called Malapa that uh, had been just this incredible discovery, a lifetime discovery, where one of the richest hominid sites in the world, multiple skeletons of a two million year old species called Australopithecus sediba, which had focused ah. my work for five years. And suddenly I was locked out of the site because of this building uh, being done that I was creating laboratory infrastructure over the site. and. I realized I had this sort of epiphany of boredom that that I hadn't been exploring since my, in 2008, nine-year-old son Matthew had said, Dad, I found a fossil, which launched that whole adventure. And so I had this incredible map I'd created uh, with a National Geographic grant uh, several years before that resulted in the discovery of Sediba. And it was a map of these little holes in the ground, effectively. Uh, I'd map caves. I'd figure out a way to use Google Earth to uh, discover caves and map them. And I realized that the moment I discovered Malapa and this incredible you know, find of a lifetime, I literally stopped exploring because you know, it, it, our field at that stage at least was lottery level. You mm-hmm. could, you know, the vast majority of people in this field went their entire lives without ever discovering a single fragment of one of these ancient hominids. And so I decided to, you know, go back to that map and uh, what those map, those holes that I was mapping really are, are effectively doorways into the underworld. They're, they're, they are the entrances to caves that 
that connect to vast networks of underground systems that no one had really explored. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I, 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 this is a well-known story, but a former graduate student of mine, Pedro Boshoff, came into my office. He was destitute. He, he was a caving buddy of mine. I sent him out with a motorcycle I bought through the university, which is a miracle in and of itself. And out he went. He found out he was physiologically inappropriate to get into most of these systems. He was too fat. And so we enlisted two amateurs, Rick Hunter and Steve Tucker, who were physiologically appropriate and young enough to be crazy to go into these deep systems. And I gave them this map, and they went at, you know, they went at it. And I told them to start in our most explored areas first because I'd learned something from the Malapa discovery. It was a, it was a half a mile from where I'd spent. Uh, 17 years looking. So I thought, I realized that you could miss things in your own backyard. They, of course, did exactly the opposite. They went to all the caves that they hadn't seen before on my map. But months go by not getting great reports. And then on September 13th, uh, Rick and Steve went into the Rising Star Cave System, a well-known system of three and a half or four kilometers of caves. And they found this chute. It's actually a chute labyrinth or a passage going down uh, they were they were already 25, 30 meters underground, and this this thing went down. It was a yeah. tiny squeeze that really was difficult for them to get down. 12 meters they went, landing on the floor of a cave and saw bones. Mm. So they find that this chute, it's a <laughs> challenge. you, you got to hire uh, skinny people to get in there. What do they that, find? That's right. So they bring back pictures of bones. I recognize these bones are ancient hominins. I'm very excited because it's a context I've never seen. I have no idea how I'm going to get into this place. I, you know, a funny anecdote is after, you know, actually raising the funds for the expedition, literally the night they showed me the material from, from National Geographic, I, I got cold feet. So because these are two amateurs, I hardly know them at that time. And so I sent my then 15-year-old son, who was very skinny, into this space. I'm sitting up at the top, you know, watching him disappear into to his death in darkness. I did not tell his mother before I did that. Um, but he brought pictures out. And so I had no idea how to do this. This was clearly going to be one of the most difficult and dangerous uh, expeditions any paleoanthropologist had ever conducted. And so, you know, I guess I did what our generation did. Uh, I put an ad out on Facebook for skinny scientists. <laughs> how do you phrase that? Is it, uh, are you not running afoul of hiring laws because South Africa has <laughs> looser definitions of protected classes? <laughs> well, you know, this is a pretty, you know, you had to be able to get in. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, I know. You yeah. had to have the skills. You had to, you had to have, you had to have the, the physique. Yeah. You had to have the a PhD or near equivalent uh, in paleoanthropology, archaeology, geology. You had to be able to excavate and have excavation skills. So you had to be trained in 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 that way. You had to be willing to do it. Right. You had to be willing to risk your life for what we didn't know, what we were going to get. And so, you know, it was a it was it, it, it was pretty much a self-selection of that. I thought there were going to be like four people in the world that had those skills. It turned out there were almost 60 that applied, qualified that applied. Um, and I selected the the six best and they just happened to be young women. So did you know you were onto something or more hoped and or you know maybe it's in between strongly suspected but hope was informing that suspicion? No, I I I knew 
I knew from looking at the images that it must be a primitive hominin. It was just that the context of it lying there on the floor, just laying there, we don't see things like that. You know, they're embedded in rocks and that sort of thing. Had so bothered me that, yes, I had a lot of sleepless nights leading up to that expedition. And even in the first few days of it, was I just, you know, doing this gigantic, expensive, dangerous thing for something that might not pan out. But, you know, they're, they're, you know if you do not take great risk, you will never get great reward. And, and I guess adding to that pressure was that I, I and my colleagues – my colleagues and I did make the decision to, to bring this to the world live. Um, yeah. Largely the, the idea that no one had ever brought the discovery of an ancient human relative to an audience live. And the – oh, I'm not going to say showman. Let's say open source aspect of it. How informed was that by the fact that you were funded and have an affiliation with National Geographic? It wasn't. They fought against it. Really? Um, they were they were terribly against it at that time. Um, you know, it was not the thing to do. It, at that time, everyone was worried that, that, you know, what if it wasn't what you said it was going to be? What mm -hmm. if you are going to embarrass both things like National Geographic, your university? The, there was an enormous amount of pressure. But, you know, I, I kind of have, anyone who knows my career, a very different attitude to that. I think that one of the great mistakes we have made as scientists is we've turned much of science into magic yeah. and that we, we may make a discovery and we may hint at it and the newspapers may pick it up or whatever, you know, the social media may pick it up, but then we go silent. And we do our stuff in the lab behind the scenes or we get it out and we go through all the trauma and all the mistakes and learning that we, that, that, that we do. And then all of a sudden, we release the end result as if it's truth. That is not the way science works. And, and we've created mistrust in science because then sometimes that truth turns out to be wrong. It's not actually wrong. That's just the process of hypothesis formulation and reevaluation. But because we haven't included the public in that journey, they haven't seen the journey. And so I'm a believer that they, the public have the right to see discoveries from every moment, from literally the moment that we, uh, as close as we can get to that eureka or discovery moment, all the way through the process, so they understand what we're actually telling them when we come to them with our results, our, our initial conclusions, which is our first hypothesis, which will be the first of many as we continue to get new data and, and, and learn more. What did going open source get you in terms of everything that a paleoanthropologist is after? Either attention, um, confirmation, or anything else I'm not even thinking of. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people uh, got to see and continue to see. In fact, I think the impressions last week were three billion uh, impressions, which will give you some idea of the impact of open source to that. Um, we are bringing science to everyone, and I think that should be the mission of every scientist. It, it is – we're not doing this for ourselves. Otherwise, that, that's idiotic. We're doing it for the world. And, and so that's the first thing. It brings it to people. Second, it teaches science. It teaches the processes of science. It shows what scientists look like. How many people, if it, you know, prior to 2013, would have said, draw an underground explorer? 
I bet they draw a skinny white guy. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. <laughs> you know, right at the front end of risking your life. And that's important for young women and girls to, to, to see role models of, of that. How many people nowadays, as you look at what we're doing, would see people like Kanelwe Moliapane, Dr. Kanelwe Moliapane on the front page of newspapers all over the world as, as the new lead excavator and explorer in these, these underground systems in, in my team. And, and she's a young black woman from South Africa. And seeing that as a face of dangerous and difficult exploration, that's enormous. And of course, that attention brings greater resources, not only to us as a, a single team, I believe it brings greater resources to the entire field. What is the pro- what is the usual process of so here you have uh, Homo Naledi, you tell me how you named it, I know or who gets to name it after the uh, cave system. What is the usual process? Uh, you have a thesis, I believe this is a new species. How do we confirm that it is? How uh, who makes that judgment and how does being open source affect that process? So you want you want the how it would typically happen or how we did it? Yeah, give me both. Okay, so how it would typically uh, typically happen, and, and it still probably happens with most teams, is there's a small private group of usually the principal investigator, in this case that would be me, and a tiny group of, of their colleagues that they trust. That group sits and mulls over this material by comparing it to other material. Perhaps they will singularly travel to every location that holds fossils of a similar ilk. They will perhaps even enlist their own graduate students or themselves to collect data sets against living animals and, uh, and, and zoological collections. And after that analysis, which because they're doing it that way, will take years and years and years. And, and, and I'm not underemphasizing this. Um, there are at least probably five or six cases in the last 30 years that have taken over 20 years. Mm. And they then will study it. They will come to their conclusions. They'll submit it to a trade journal that publishes it. And they have, during the course of that, decided it's a new species. They get to name the new species because they are the discoverers and the describers. And my colleagues and I decided, you know, we're a different generation. We're the, we're the generation that invented Google. Yeah. We were a generation that understood maybe not clearly how that information has value only when it's freely exchanged. We invented Wikipedia. I was an early starter in Wikipedia, then founded with Larry Sanger the Breakaway Citizendium, which failed miserably because we didn't <laughs> anticipate bots and all these things. But, but you know, we were a different way of thinking about the value of information and data. And so it was actually quite a logical way for um, our team to work. We believe that you share data, you get as many scientists and qualified people to examine it, you collectively understand what the flaws and, and uh, hypotheses are, you bring people with existing data sets together quicker. So the difference between our team uh, doing Homo Naledi and the team I described before, um, we were numbering well o- o- over 50 scientists within, within six months. And, and half of those were early career scientists, yeah. you know, people right out of their PhDs. Because also, you know, I, I, you know, I am a student of science, a, a lifelong learner of science. And if you look around at hard sciences, the physical sciences, uh, mathematics, physics, you know, astro- any of these, you know, chemistry, the very finest minds in that are young. 
Mm-hmm. You know, what's that old saying? If you don't have your Fields Medal by the time you're 30, you're not going to get one. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, and and a Fields Medal for mathematics for those yes, of you yeah. who uh, need to Google that. But the, um, you know, and so we did that. It was seen as radical. We published in open access, open sourcing. We gave all our data away. That is every measurement. We created 3D shape files so you could check what we were saying. And I think that's the right thing to do. I think it's respectful of your audience. You don't have to believe us. You can check it yourself. And in all of that, we ended up with an enormous audience. But also, where we sit now, Homo Naledi was one of the, is probably one of, if not the best known species of ancient human relative that exists. So I want to ask you about publicizing your recent findings about Homo Naledi burying their dead and carving symbols on the cave walls. What yes. is what is the significance of those acts? So Homo Naledi, I, I think I first have to describe Homo Naledi. Homo Naledi is is while it lived in the relatively recent past, and you know when we sling numbers of you know two hundred and forty thousand to three hundred and thirty thousand years, people well, that's a long time ago. But not in human origins. Um, we right. were uh, appearing as large brain hominids at that time. Neanderthals were appearing as large brain hominids in Europe. The small brain hominids, with the exception of, but that we recently learned of, of, of on the island of Flores, and had had all but disappeared. There, there were none. We we were viewing human evolution as relatively a linear replacement model, where big brain, a constantly bigger brain won, and eventually were left with us. When we announced Tillman was 230 to uh, uh, 240 to 330,000 years, what was surprising was its cranial capacity. Its cranial capacity was slightly larger than chimpanzees, mm-hmm. about a third the size of a human's, well within what would have before that been put into an australopithecine, you know, these, 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 these more primitive, more ape-like bipedal apes. So Naledi is also very different in its body. It's, it's got ape-like shoulders, but it gets progressively more human-like out when you extend out towards its hands, which are, but its fingers are highly curved. It's got a unique thumb. Its pelvis mm-hmm. is primitive. It looks like it should be from something like Lucy, but then you go down its long, skinny legs and it has a human-like foot. And so it's, it's very different from us. It's a grade-level difference from a human. They would, they would look nothing like, even though they would be as tall as many humans, you know, four and a half to five and a half foot tall. Yeah. Standing next to each other, you know, you take two uh, female Naledis and a human Naledi and, and you would – it would not pass the famous subway test that a Neanderthal would pass. If you put a Neanderthal in a, in, in a suit or a dress on a, yeah. on a New York subway, you'd go, hmm, ugly. But you'd probably think there's some famous, you know, rugby player or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd probably say, oh, at least people are wearing suits on the subway again. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So, so when we – and that, you know, it's not a human. Everyone goes, but you put it in the genus Homo. We did it because the weight of its, its adaptive model was trending more towards what in convention our field has called Homo rather than Australopithecine. It was a coin toss-up at the time. Do we put into Homo, Australopithecus, or do we put in its own genus? 
Right. What I described there is not the grade that is the long distance walker with a big brain and broad barrel chest and, and, and walking hips that is, that is homo sapiens um, and, or Neanderthals uh, or even erectus. And, and so suddenly um, we throw out a couple of weeks ago uh, this thesis that, that this small brain non-human species uh, contemporary with, with Homo sapiens, by the way, who are not doing that at that time. Homo sapiens have not evolved those behaviors by that time, are doing something that until that moment, if our hypothesis stands a test of time, was only known to be done by large-brained Homo sapiens and only certainly by humans and only in the last 100,000 years or so. Yeah. And it, 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 if you had to list the things that are ours, that we thought were sacred, if you use that word, to humans, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they would be universal mortuary practices related to death. Mm -hmm. That was our thing. Every human culture known does that. Second to that is art and symbolism. And the third one is, by the way, universal uh, use of mind-altering substances. But we'll leave that one off for the moment <laughs> and deal with those, those first two. Yeah. So when we drop in that this small-brained uh, hominid that is not a human is doing two critical things. It's burying its dead, and we believe it is making meaning-making symbols above those burials, directly above those burials, in an inaccessible place where we believe we know every human that has ever entered it. And there is no evidence that any Homo sapiens has ever been in that space prior to that. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of space Homo sapiens don't go into, by the way. We don't. We're not. We're, that's not our thing. No, unless you advertise for them on Facebook, then <laughs> sixty will apply. But yes, <laughs> then we are taking away what most scientists superficially believe is an identity of being human. Tomorrow, my conversation with Lee Berger continues. I play a little devil's advocate with him about whether or not what he found was really what he thinks it was. I like to tangle with the most esteemed people in their field and say, are you sure? I think you like that too. That's tomorrow on The Gist. And now the spiel, part two. We do live in a fact-challenged, choose-your-own-reality media ecosystem. That's true, but we're often told that in order to wield it as an insult to castigate the other side or just to explain the wrong people and what makes them wrong. But the more I encounter facts generated from the soft social sciences, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, there are wonderful political scientists and sociologists out there, but so often I get one of these facts or statistics or surveys, and I wonder how seriously we should take the conclusions. Or I don't even see it originating from the study. I see it reported in the press. I trace it back, and then I say, my, that is underwhelming. It's not always the fault of the researchers. Often, they will 
will conduct a study, get a result, not lie or exaggerate about the strength of the result. But then the result gets passed around and cited and the citations get cited and they link to in papers that refer to other papers. And then they're picked up by a reporter and some very shaky claim of reality is presented as truth. When it's really at best, a stab at a small slice of understanding. And to be very plain about things, like the definitions of is it true or not, it is not something we could call the truth. Yesterday, I talked about the idea that fraternity members are three times as likely to rape. This idea, Google it, fraternity members, likelihood to rape. Top Hits The Guardian, a story by Jessica Valenti, frat brothers rape 300% more. LA Times quoting the same statistic in 2021. A big law firm is there looking to get your case. There's a prominent, uh, one of the top 10 hits, a CNN article by one of the authors of one of the studies who points to other studies saying everyone is finding this 300% more likely to rape. Which, by the way, you could just say three times as likely to rape, but 300 looks like a bigger number in the headlines than three, so why not go with that? I traced them all back to the first study uh, that was cited among the people who cite this statistic. It's by researchers named Bleeker and Mernin, and I couldn't believe it. I'll read from the study. The study was conducted to learn more about the association between fraternity membership and attitudes and behaviors associated with sexual aggression against women. A male experimenter took digital pictures of all the images of women displayed in the rooms of 30 fraternity men and 30 non-fraternity men. The men also filled out a rape myth acceptance scale. They then looked at the 91 images taken, the posters, pinups, advertisements, screensavers, and found that fraternity men had more images of women displayed in their rooms and that the images were rated significantly more degrading than those in the rooms of non-fraternity men. By the way, there were two more images in the rooms of fraternity men. Fraternity men were also found to have significantly higher scores on a rape supportive attitude scale. What is a rape supportive attitude scale? It's when they ask people to evaluate questions like, I'm going to give you a statement, tell me if you agree or you disagree, and do it on a scale of one to five. One is strongly disagree, five is strongly agree. When guys rape, it's usually because of their strong desire for sex. That's one question. And the busting myths answer would be no, it's because of something like power, or maybe, I don't know, it's acceptable to say, uh, access to alcohol or drugs. So you're supposed to, if you want to be not a believer in rape myths, say you strongly disagree with that statement, but I don't know, maybe an answer closer to two might account for the fact that there's certainly some desire for sex that plays into it. Don't want to even argue that point. I want to say there are a number of statements like this that I think a fair-minded person can interpret as maybe not something to strongly disagree with. But if you do, you're said to accept rape myths more. And that's all they did. They saw how many of the men with pictures of women had a higher, actually a lower score on the rape myth acceptance scale. And they found that fraternity men on this scale were, according to researchers, more accepting of rape myths. And that's where they get the statistic that frat brothers rape 300% more. Then there was another study. This one is a little bit better. They actually surveyed based on things you did, not just attitudes you have or pictures you displayed. And in this study by researchers named Faubert, could be Faubert, Newberry, and Tatum, studied if giving a talk or some lessons about consent helped lower the rate of sexual assault on campus with fraternity members or not. This was in 2007. Luckily, it did. But here are the numbers from which we base mm, the 300 times more rape among fraternity members. 
They found that there were 111 undergraduates who joined fraternities and 365 who did not. Of those, their findings were that 8% of the men who joined fraternities committed a sexually coercive act versus 2.5% of the men who did not join fraternities. In absolute terms, eight fraternity members committed a sexually coercive act, nine non-fraternity members committed a sexually coercive act. But wait, sexually coercive act, is that rape? Well, it's not. There is a scale, it's useful. This is again, not the fault of the researchers. The researchers seem proper. They were going with this established scale where the lowest, or I guess the most benign act that could be considered a sexually coercive act is pressuring someone into kissing you. So there were possibly eight fraternity members who pressured someone into kissing them. Now, it could have been worse. The researchers do not say if it was worse, but there could be as many as 8% of the first year men who committed that act and 2.5% or nine non-fraternity members who committed that act of pressuring someone into kissing them. The study was done 15 years ago. It was at one school, eight of the 111 fraternity members kissed someone, or worse, could have been worse. And from there, we get an extrapolation of an actual action, a crime that is one of the worst crimes imaginable, short of murder, maybe the worst crime. That becomes the headline that fraternity men at a rate of 300% more, the rate of non-fraternity men are committing one of the most heinous acts that our criminal justice code adjudicates against. But they don't track the act. They don't chronicle police reports. I understand not all rapes or sexual assaults show up in police reports, but they don't even do the thing where they look at, I don't know, the campus police blotter, and they look at all the complaints of rape, and they cross-index that with a student directory to see if the accused was in a fraternity or not in a fraternity. There just seem to be many, many, many ways you can get to a much more solid number of the actual crime rather than a survey taken 15 years ago of an action that in no way, according to the legal code, describes that crime. It seems that there is so many better methods if what you wanted was an accurate statistic. If what you want is something to put in a headline and pass around and not really check the origins of, well, by God, you got it. So I could tell you all of this and you could say thanks, or you could say, huh? Or you could say, uh, you're weird, or it doesn't matter, or fraternity guys are still much worse, which they probably are. Or you'd say the very popular, yeah, but still. But what I have is some sort of erosion of my faith in social science and the journalistic game of telephone, and therefore some eroding bit of knowledge or supposed knowledge or my belief in knowledge, which is bad because defensive cynicism is not an actual replacement for knowledge. According to the rules of the game, the pictures of the dorm room researchers did find two more dirty pictures or suggestive pictures in the rooms of fraternity guys. Okay, then someone else came that and spun that into rape rates. I didn't see anything in that study. I read it a few times. I even wondered, is this the wrong study? No, that was the study that they cited as three times the amount of rape. And, you know, I'm not here to debate this agreed upon rape uh, myth assessment model, but when they have statements like, girls who are caught cheating on their boyfriends sometimes claim it was rape. Now you gotta say one, strongly disagree, if you bust the myth of rape acceptance. 
But I don't know, sometimes, what does it mean to sometimes agree with that they sometimes do this? I know what the right answer is if you want to stand to thwart rape acceptance. Uh, I do not know if that is a totally accurate question, but I am 100% sure that your answer to that doesn't mean that you are a rapist. The point isn't to adjudicate, litigate the legitimacy of the scale. It's to show that the use of a tool gets extrapolated into the prevalence of an attitude, which gets, and this is a big leap, turned into the occurrence of an act, which gets reported as the existence of a fact. And then that fact becomes used and used and used again, like a discarded piece of gum that gets so trotted upon, it becomes a permanent piece of the pavement. And I could do this, not just with this fact, with dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of facts I come across and you come across every day. And we're not talking about Joe Rogan propagated facts or Trump assertions, just the casually tossed off statistic that was gleaned from methods that no reasonable person, if they knew about, would say, oh yeah, that's a valid description of the actual truth of the universe. I mean, they might say, I bet fraternity members rape more. I do too. I just don't have the facts to prove it. Not via these studies, the studies that are cited. So these are the kind of facts that don't get challenged by researchers or retracted from a journal. They just get passed around and lead to general epistemic degradation. That's where we are now. And that's why all I can do is default to the truth. Whose truth? What is truth? Subjectivity, objectivity, there is no truth. No, I find out what is true. I say, that seems to be true. Here's my evidence. I discover what is not true. And I say, that really doesn't seem to be the case. I don't know if any of that will lead to a promised land of knowledge with a capital K, but it seems uh, the best or the most foolproof method compared with all the others. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>